Last week, um, last week we started a message on marriage that got too big, so we didn't finish. Um, and we're not going to finish the whole message this Sunday either. It's just kind of mushroom. So uh, we're actually going to do part three in two weeks, the week after Father's Day, because we'd already planned on doing Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 for Father's Day. So we're going to come back. Just because it's so important, God has impressed upon my heart not to skim over these passages, because some of you are in a position in your life, whether you're married or wanting to be married, and you need to hear what God has to say, because as I shared last week, marriage is on the decline in popularity in our culture. It's in part because people look at the marriages around them and see how many have collapsed and the, uh, the high divorce rate and they feel like, you know what, this piece of paper is not going to guarantee it's going to work. And so many have opted to try before you buy, uh, live together, let's see if they're compatible and then if they are, get married. But statistics also show that those who go that route have a higher divorce rate than those who don't live together before marriage. So what's wrong? What's not working? Is, is marriage something that's just, it, the times have changed so much, it's kind of archaic, it just doesn't work in our culture? Is marriage broken? Or could it be that the people in marriage are broken? And that marriage itself is still a very valid institution. In fact, I think most people have within their heart that they would love to find someone to spend the rest of their life with in a loving, committed relationship. They just don't know if it's possible, if it can work. And so I want to recap a little bit of what we covered last week, just for those of you who weren't here or for those of you who were here and maybe um, need to be reminded of what we talked about. Um, I shared that with any kind of equipment, you get an owner's manual. And yet many of us are so proud, we won't bother to open that little book that comes in the plastic bag to know how something works because we know how to do it. It's so obvious. I mean, the other day, I, I took a, a hose that I bought at Lowe's out of the garage, and I needed to use it to water some plants. And along with that hose was a, a little card. And I just took it off, I ripped it off, threw it in the trash, snipped the little plastic things that held the hose together, and then it dawned on me that just last week I talked about how important it is we read the instructions. So I said, okay. I dug it back out of the trash. And of course, it's important to stop in two languages right on the cover. So I open this up, and there's four pictures, and of course, this is essential for operating a hose effectively so that you aren't hurt and end up in the hospital. And so I'm, I'm looking over this thing, and of course, it says uh, the best scenario is to unravel this hose when it's seven degrees or warmer because it's more flexible. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, number two, make sure that you take off the plastic wrap before you actually use it. Like, Duh! Who wouldn't do that? And then, and then and number three and four, I mean, very important instructions if you're from another planet. I mean, do you need a little, little guidebook to operate a hose? Really? Really? Do I, need to, do, I need to, do I need these instructions to know how to hook one end here and how to hold the other end? Really? And, and I get this with my hose, but I'll tell you, when, when you go to get a marriage license, you don't, even get, you don't even get a set of instructions as small as this. You don't. And, and most of the time, you don't feel like you even need it. You'd probably throw it in the trash if they gave it to you because you've seen it. You've watched your parents. You've watched the TV shows. You know how marriage works. But the problem is, it's not working real well for most of us. And so we're looking at a passage from Ephesians chapter 5, one of the best passages in all of Scripture to understand what God says about marriage. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to reread this passage 
Starting with verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And we began looking at marriage and what needs to be reclaimed in order to do marriage God's way. And so last week we talked about this first principle that we need to reclaim God's purpose for marriage. Paul goes back to the Old Testament, to actually Genesis chapter 2, and he cites this first statement of the first married couple. How God brought Adam and Eve together and how Adam was lonely And though the animals couldn't satisfy the needs and God himself couldn't satisfy his relational needs, he made a woman to come along beside the man. And he says, um, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. Uh, A miraculous thing happens in a marriage where two people intertwine their lives and become one. And I pointed out that of all the purposes of marriage, you get married for political reasons, you get married for economic reasons, you can get married for sexual reasons, you can get married because you want to raise kids... And all those can have a value, but the most important reason to get married is to break the loneliness. It's for companionship. Because all those other things will pass in time. I mean, the time of raising kids will pass. The time of, of, of high sexual activity will pass. The time of, of economic growth will pass. And you'll be left with each other. And one of the most beautiful sights is to see two wrinkly, fraily, frail old people walking hand in hand, and you know they're best friends. Because companionship is at the core of marriage. And a close second would be discipleship because we said that marriage isn't about me finding the right person, it's about us becoming better people. It's about us coming together and going through this process of growing in our relationship with Christ. And so th- this idea that there's a perfect person out there for me that will completely complete me is a false hope. Because you will not find that perfect person. There are no perfect people. There are projects out there. And what you need is someone who's willing to go on that journey of process with you. Because the person you marry is not the person you're going to know down the road. They're going to be like, oh, I discovered all kinds of things about you that are broken. A lot more than when, when we were dating. And, and your spouse will help point those out to you if you don't see those. And so in the process, God uses your mate to help you become more Christ-like. As Paul said here, um, the husband makes his wife beautiful. He helps her to remove the the wrinkles and blemishes from her spiritual life. A godly spouse makes you better. Now, an ungodly spouse can make you worse. And, And just to clarify that when our spouses are walking with the Lord, God can use them in powerful ways. If they're not walking with the Lord, they can be very devastating. The words that come from their mouths can be very hurtful. They can say things that are lies from the enemy. They they can crush you. And if you're in a marriage like that, in a situation where your spouse is not godly, 
and things come out of them that are very hurtful, I would encourage you, surround yourselves with people who will remind you of God's truth, of who you are, what your identity is in him. But if your spouse is walking with the Lord, more than likely, God will use that person to speak into your life, to help you to grow, to become more and more like Christ. So we need to restore uh, God's purpose of marriage, this, this relationship, this companionship that's helping me become more and more like Christ. Well, today I want to talk about the second thing to reclaim, and it's this. Reclaim Jesus' pattern for marriage. See, in verses 31 and 32, um, Paul said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He brings up this word mystery, that there's something about marriage that's connected with the gospel, that's connected with Jesus' relationship with the church. And he says um, it is a mystery. Now, you may be nodding your head and going, marriage is a mystery. I know that. I just can't figure my spouse out. It's just puzzling to me. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about marriage being the mystery to us. It's talking about this, this idea of what marriage should be that wasn't fully seen and fully revealed until God chose to reveal it through Christ. A mystery in Scripture is not something that's, that's um, uh, always hidden from us, uh, something that's puzzling, something that we can never find out unless we're the um, initiated few. See, in Ephesus, they were very familiar with the mystery religions, these religions that, that gave certain teachings to the initiated. And if you're in the club, you got to know what this was about. If you're outside the club, you didn't. And there are mystery things today. There are certain societies and clubs, fraternities and sororities and organizations that, that have mysteries that if you're on the outside, you don't, you're not privileged to know. And so these people came from that background, and Paul says, but you know what? The mysteries of Christianity, the mysteries of God, are not things that are, are meant to be kept from you. They're things that God wants to reveal to you through Christ. And so in chapter 1, we, we read about the mystery of God's will. Later, Paul talks about the mystery of Christ. In chapter 3 and chapter 6, he talks about the mystery of the gospel, which, remember, was that mystery that, that all along God intended for the Gentiles to be part of his family. And then we have this mystery of marriage. What is the fuller revelation that God is showing us in this passage? It is this, that there is something about marriage that can only be understood through Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church. It's a sacred reflection of God's love for his people. When marriage works right, it is a testimony to an unbelieving world, to your friends, to your family, to the people that live around you, that that there is a God who who loves us immeasurably. When a marriage works right, we see grace flowing in that relationship in a way that God's grace flows to us. And sometimes it seems very intangible, like I don't understand how it works, but then you see it in someone's marriage and you go, that's what it works, that's how it works, I see it in action. And that's how marriage, when it's done well, reflects the gospel. It's very powerful. He says, this is the the sacred mystery. It's so sacred that if you go back in the Old Testament, you you won't find awesome marriages. I mean, think about it. You go back to Adam and Eve, and of course, they came together and they loved each other, but, but we never looked to them as the epitome of what a marriage should look like. I mean, they sinned, they, they were ashamed, they, they, they raised a son who killed his brother, and we look at them and go, well, we'll give them a pass because they never got to see what marriage looked like. I mean, they never had parents to, to model it for them. We'll give them a pass. But let's, let's say Abraham, of all people, the father of faith, Abraham, surely, surely he's going to show us what marriage is like. Now, remember Abraham? 
twice, not once, but twice, he goes into foreign cities and he tells the leaders, um, this, is, this is my sister. This is my sister, Sarah, and you can take her if you want to sleep with her, whatever you want to do. She's yours, just don't kill me. Twice he did that. How's that for um, godly heroism? How'd you feel if that was your husband? Denying you, denying that he's married to you so that, that you get shuttled off to some other man. That's Abraham. How about David? David, the man after God's own heart. How about David? David, David collects wives like you collect um, you know, dolls and coins and things. I mean, he's got them from all different nations. And he's, he's got a bunch of wives over here. He's got uh, porcupines, I mean concubines over here, which are kind of like mistresses. You know, these are the ones that help me raise my kids. These are the ones that I'll have fun with. And then, and then on top of that, he goes after a man's wife that's in his military, sleeps with his wife, gets her pregnant, and then makes sure that he gets killed. Okay, let's look at David to learn how to be a good husband. I mean, you go through the Old Testament, you cannot find a story to really to hold up and say, now that's what a great um, husband-wife relationship looks like. It wasn't until Christ came and really elevated the role of women and who women were and gave them dignity and challenged men to, to, to be more godly that we really see what marriage is like. There is one glimpse in the Old Testament, I would say, of a great husband, and it's God. Where God actually calls himself the husband to Israel. And that when Israel strays and goes after other gods, he, he tells them that they are adulterous. Because he has covenanted together with them. He says, I have pledged myself to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am devoted to you. Why are you sleeping around with these other idols? Why are you searching for love elsewhere when I've committed to always give it to you? And so God becomes the, the epitome of what a husband should look like. And then we see that in the New Testament in very tangible form through Jesus Christ, through his own life and how he loved. And so marriage reflects Jesus' relationship with his church. We want to know how we should operate marriage. Look no further than Jesus Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. We see this in the book of Revelation where it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, men, just go with this. It's just a biblical picture. We are part of the bride of Christ, okay? All of us, men and women. We are as a church the bride of Christ that is being prepared for that great wedding day that is to come. In heaven, where we get united with Jesus Christ and we get to celebrate this wedding feast for eternity. That is to come. And so Jesus looks at us collectively as this bride that he's protecting and purifying and preparing for this great day. We are the bride. And so we can look to Jesus to look at how he related to his bride. He is the the pattern to follow for how to conduct a marriage. I would say that pretty much all of our marriage problems stem from this fact, we fail to live like Jesus. That pretty much every, every problem you have in your marriage, whether you're the husband or the wife, comes back to the simple fact that you are not living like Jesus. You are not following his example for what you should be doing in your marriage. Now, we learn from this passage that men and women have different roles in marriage. He identifies them here. Uh, he, he tells them to do things differently. He, he says how you should treat each other a little bit different. Now, What you need to know is this. Men and women are equal in God's eyes. Different roles does not not, um, signify different value or significance. All it does is point out different responsibilities. And that's all it is. Different responsibilities. We are all made in the image of God and reflect God in different ways. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent from man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What he's saying is this. The first woman came from man. God took a rib from Adam, formed Eve. So the first woman came from man. But do you know that every man after Adam came from a woman? Every single one. Every single man in this room, you came from a woman. Okay? That's his point there. Who's more important? It's like the chicken and the egg. They both are. You can't get a, 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 a child without a man and a woman contributing to that creation. They're both critical. So he's saying both, both are valuable. Both have their level of importance. This, this is not an issue of who's more important than the other. It's a matter of uh, responsibilities, of roles within marriage. Men and women are like in, in so many ways. Um, both are highly intelligent. Both are highly gifted and skilled. Um, both are highly creative. And so, so men and women are alike in so many ways, and yet at the same time, they are very different. Very different. And I know culture tries to minimize the differences, but they're there. They are so obvious. If, if we want to dismiss the differences and say, because uh, some people will say, well, the only thing different is, is the sexual organs of a man and a woman. Other than that, they're identical. If that's true, then let's eliminate men's and women's sports. Let's, let's have the Olympics be all one. Let's have them compete together. And, and you'll immediately feel like that's not fair. Because physically, men are different than women. We just see that. Women are going to get hurt playing football with men. It's just, we're just made different. It's not that one's better than the other. It's just that we're different. And God made us different for a reason. Even, even in the way we function, Dr. Gregory Jantz wrote a, an article for Psychology Today several years ago citing the differences in our, our brains between men and women. And some, some of those differences create advantages and some create disadvantages. For example, he says there are structural differences. A, a, a man and woman's brain is actually, actually grows differently. The, the woman has a larger section of the brain called the hippocampus. Um, the hippocampus is where memories get stored, where emotions get connected within there. That's why um, women can remember great details about events in their life. They can remember how they felt in certain situations. They can remember uh, very minute details. Men and women have different um, verbal centers in their brains. Um, women have them on both sides, the left side and the right side. You know that men only have it on the left side? It's pretty, pretty typical. Men only have it on the left side, uh, meaning men, that men are only half there when they're communicating. <laughs> And because the women have, have working on both sides, it, it, it interconnects with more other stuff within their brains. And, and Jantz concludes that's why women can connect emotions to a lot more of their conversations than men. It's not that, that, that men don't have emotions. It's that they're like disconnected from them. And so another difference is they process information differently. Men process information seven times more than women in the gray matter area, while women process information ten times more often in the white matter of, of their brains. Now, what, what does that matter? Well, it matters a lot because in the gray matter, um, men are able to focus intensely on specific tasks. 
In the white matter, there, there are much more, there, there are various interconnections, wiring in that area of the brain. And so when you're operating in that area of the brain, it interconnects with all these other things that are going on in your life, which explains why a man who gets very focused on a project, he, he can do it for a long period of time, and you kind of leave him alone. Because if you try to get him away from that, he can get kind of frustrated. A, a, a woman's over here. She's working in this side of the brain. Now, again, I'm speaking in generalities. You'll always find exceptions to this. You may feel like, well, I'm not that way. I'm more this way. That's true. But generally speaking, this is how, how it tends to be. Women are, are better at multitasking than men. And they can move from one task to another very seamlessly while a man feels like, oh, got to stop this now. And now I've got to get focused over here. And, and it's... There's, you see, there's strengths and weaknesses with that. You want someone to get a job done and really focus on it? A man can often do that really well. You want to get a lot of different stuff done? A woman can be a lot better than a man, typically, at doing that. Another difference is the chemistry in the brains, that the neurochemicals, the hormones, the serotonin, oxytocin, um, estrogen, testosterone, all of those hormones affect us in different ways. For example, we know that testosterone um, can make some more energetic and even aggressive. We know that oxytocin is, is very um, useful in helping us relate to other people. Well, guess who has more testosterone and who has more um, oxytocin? That's why little boys don't sit still very well. That's why they've got to be moving all the time. They're, they're, they're active. And, and that's why women have a lot of relationships because of oxytocin and how that enables them to relate to others in, in, a, in, a, in a way that's more natural than for men. And these are chemicals that, that God has uh, enabled our bodies to produce and to process. It gives us insight into what's going on in the life of the other gender. And it, it ought to affect how we teach kids, how we parent kids, our expectations of relationships, how they function because of the different chemicals going on in your body. And then finally, the fourth one he points out is the amount of blood flow and brain activity. Women have a greater flow to what's called the cingulated gyrus. It's a, it's a place where you can um, revisit and, and ponder emotional memories. And men, men don't have as much flowing there. And so they don't go there that often. And they, it almost seems like men are detached from their feelings. It's not that men don't want to. It's just like we're not wired for it. So, so we can't. We can't quite go there. And, and as I said, there's strengths and weaknesses of both. Sometimes it's very good because a man can oftentimes move on and say, that doesn't hurt me. I'm moving on. Where a woman says, I, I can't move on because I'm still, still dealing with the emotional, um, the, the emotional um, fallout of this. And so we're just different and he actually points out, this Dr. Jantz in this article, there are over a hundred such differences that have been discovered between the brains of men and women. And then he concludes this, the importance of these differences cannot be overstated. So is it any surprise, knowing those differences, that God says, okay, in the marriage, you're going to function in different roles. So I want to talk first of all, and, and, and look in the home, and how a husband functions first. And I want to point out as well that what we're going to talk about is general roles, not specific duties, because culture more than Scripture dictates our specific view of duties. You grow up in a home where dad does this. For example, you may grow up in a home where it says, mom always cooks, and mom serves the food to the table, and she changes the diapers, and dad always works in the yard and works on the car and everything outside, 
manual labor stuff. He does it. If something breaks, dad fixes it. If there's a bug, dad kills it. You know, you grow up in a culture where you say, well, that's, I've learned that. That's what my dad did. That's what I should do. But then you marry someone else who in their home, well, dad always did the cooking in my house. And, and my mom actually made more money than my dad in her job. And actually, my mom loved to work on cars. So then you get married, you go, hey, wait, wait a minute. And then you start saying, well, the, well, the Bible says the man does this. Because show me where it says these specific duties are, are laid out. See, I grew up in an environment where dads worked hard, manual labor jobs, came home and sat down, and their wives brought them a beer, nice cold beer. They sat in front of the TV, watched the news. And the kids didn't bother dad. And when the kids were little, dad never changed a diaper because mom changed all the diapers. So what happens is I, I get married, and uh, we have a kid. And I'm expecting Julie to change all the diapers. And if you know my wife, she's pretty independent-minded. She says, buddy, you're going to help out here. You help make this child. You're going to help do the work for this child. And so I learned pretty quickly how to change diapers. I'm pretty good at it now, especially with the grandkids. I can change a mean, dirty diaper. (laughs) But see, in your home, it may look different than another home. That's okay. You guys figure out... um, those duties, but I'm, what I'm talking about here is these, over, these two overarching roles. What does it mean when, when Paul talks about the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is head of the church? Now, to get some insight into this, Paul had already talked about the head. When he, in chapter 1, he said, and he, meaning God, put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, so Christ is the head of his body called the church. Now people will look at this word head and honestly uh, try to do some interesting interpretations of this. Because I, I know head can be interpreted many different ways. For example, it can be used to talk about a climax of an event. Uh, the argument came to a head. Okay? It can be used of an end point of something, like the head of a nail or the head of a pin. Uh, a common use of the word is source, uh, the headwaters, place where something originates. And many people take that as the meaning of this passage, that, that God is talking about man being the source of woman, because woman came from man. So he's the source. But this has nothing to do with, with authority. But the problem with that is, in every case biblically and in ancient literature, thousands of cases of this. When it refers to people, it always refers to, to someone in a ruling position, like the head of a family, the head of an army, the head of a tribe, the head of government. It's a position that has authority attached to it. The head, in this sense, is this. It's the director or ruler. That's what the Bible means when it says this. Now, I know immediately some people are going to go, whoo, that's kind of offensive. You talk about my husband is my ruler. The fear of of even looking at this is we see men in our culture, um, typically non-Christian men, who are driven by ego and self-interest. This is not what Paul's referring to here. Remember back, and we'll talk more about it in a couple weeks when we finish this three-part series on marriage, but the Holy Spirit has to be working in in a couple's life. And when you are filled with the Spirit and seeking to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, exercising authority looks very different for the Christian than the non-Christian. This leadership, this headship, is marked, highlighted by sacrificial leadership. 
Because Paul says, you are the head of the wife and you should love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Sacrificial leadership. Verse 25 of um, chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you have to march around your house and, and announce to your spouse and kids, hey, hey, Bible says I'm the boss. Bible says I'm in charge. Better listen to me. You are not the leader. <laughs> if you have to announce it, you, you probably aren't it. I mean, positionally you are, but you're not living like you should. When, when a leader is truly leading, they don't have to announce it. People just know it. Leadership oozes from what they're doing. And so, so when, the, when the husband follows Christ, his focus is not control. His focus is care. See, if your focus is, I'm going to get, all my, I'm going to get my wife to obey me, I'm going to get my kids to obey me, you've missed the boat. It's about care. It's about, I've been given authority to care for my wife and to care for my kids. Remember what Jesus did? He cared, he cared and he cherished and nourished his wife so that she could flourish? That's what we're to focus on. There's no statement of here of control at all. It's of care. You are to use this authority to voluntarily lay your life down like Jesus did to elevate your wife. Another place where this um, word head is used in the context of marriage is in 1 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, when you hear that, immediately you can gravitate to the middle section, the head of a wife is her husband. See, honey, it says right here in Scripture. Head of a wife is her husband. That's me. Wait, go back. Go back a few words. I want you to understand that the head of every man is who? Christ. Here's where I think many men miss the mark. We're focused on authority and forgetting that, that with authority comes accountability. You, you are given authority by someone higher than you. This is not authority to do as you please. This is authority that's been granted to you. Think of a police officer. And we've got tension in our culture over this very issue. He wears the badge, the badge of authority. He carries the gun, and his, and his mission is to protect and serve. And so he's got the authority, but where did that authority come from? Above. He is accountable to people above him. He is accountable to the law that's above him, to, to his officers that are above him. He doesn't get to do as he pleases. He does as, his, as, as he is directed to do. And, and so as a husband... If our focus is on the authority part of it, hey, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, you do as I say, that, that's missing the mark because what Paul's telling us here is, is look above first. Who gave you that authority? And how is he telling you to use that authority? Is he telling you to use it to advance your own will or to advance his will? Because you have to balance authority with accountability or it goes awry and becomes very destructive. This tells me as a man, Man, I've got to listen to the Lord. I better be tuning in to God. And sadly, many men don't. We're so wrapped up in hobbies and sports and hunting and fishing, cars and all kinds of other things. And our family is crying out to us. Our spouses are crying out to us. What's God saying for us? Where are we going as a family? Who are we becoming? Would you please find out? And many times men says, well, honey, you're better at it than I am. You You take care of the God stuff. I'll take care of the, the, the material stuff. But, but, you know, I've known many very strong spiritual women, and, and honestly, they are the spiritual leaders in their homes, not because they want to, but because that role has been abdicated, and there's a void, and they're filling it. 
But I always hear them saying this, I wish my husband would step up. I wish my husband would listen to the Lord. I wish he would follow Jesus more closely. You know, in all my years of ministry, I've heard that dozens of times. Do you know how many times I've heard men come to me and say, Pastor, I wish my, hus- I wish my wife would step up and lead. I wish my wife would, would, would get closer to God and show our family what God wants us to do. I wish, I wish my wife would be the spiritual leader of our home. Do you know how many times I've, I've had a man come and say that to me? Zero. Never. I've never had that. Not a single man ever in all my years of ministry has ever come to me. But a lot of women have, and very strong, godly women have, because they want desperately for the man to do this thing. Be the sacrificial leader. Be like Jesus. That's the pattern, calling for husbands. And I wanted to focus on that first, because if you don't understand that first, the second part can sound offensive. But, but I, I, I can't even think of a woman that I know that says, I don't want a husband like that. I know a lot that says, man, I wish my husband would be just like that. So we go on to verses 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And Paul actually is making another case here. Saying, he's basically saying this. If, if Jesus is too high of a standard, and you can't really grasp that, then, then do this. Look at yourself. You, you take care of your own body. You feed it. You shower. You clean. You dress well. Okay, take care of your wife like that. Take care of it. Take care of your wife like you do your own body, okay? You can understand that. You do it every day. Do that for her. Make sure she looks pretty. Make sure she's taken care of. Make sure that she's spiritually nourished. And then he goes on to talk about the wives. That wives are to practice humble submission. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now the church, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, submit is a six-letter word that we put in a four-letter category. It's a dirty word. Uh, we don't like it. We don't, definitely don't want that in our, in our marriage, just obedience, submission stuff. Uh, and again, I think because we've, we've seen what abusive men can do. We've seen men have authority with no accountability and become verbally abusive and degrading to their wives. Let me just clarify this. God never asks wives to obey their husbands to do something that God says not to do. If, if your husband's telling you to do something that's, that's degrading or ungodly, you say, no, I, I, I obey a higher authority. But if they're simply leading us in ways that maybe are uncomfortable, we still learn to follow them and honor the place that God has given them. See, to submit literally means this, to place under in an orderly fashion. To place under in an orderly fashion. It is a word that comes from the military. That, that, the, troops, that the troops fall in line. Now, I want you to think of this. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. We are in a battle. And we didn't know how to enter the battle. And families that have no clue of how they're functioning are going to be targets and are going to be taken down by the enemy. This is part of our defense of getting in alignment for the spiritual battle that confronts us. And so you may think, well, Pastor, can't, can't my husband and I share the leadership role? Can't we just work it out together? You, you could. But let me just tell you just a fact of life. In almost all cases, this is, again, there, there's are, there are exceptions, but in most cases, when an organization 
or a group is moving forward, they need a point person. I'm going to lose an analogy. Think of a football team. Can you name me one football team that alternated quarterbacks, two quarterbacks, back and forth, back and forth, and, and won the Super Bowl? I can't. I can think of many quarterbacks who led that team. And you know what? A quarterback is appointed to call plays in the huddle. They may not be the highest um, paid player. They not, may not be the smartest player. They may not be the most talented player on the team. But when the huddle comes, who does everyone look to to know what the call is? Everyone looks to the quarterback. They look to the quarterback. And you know what? The quarterback doesn't run on his own. He's in, he's in communication with the coach because he's been learning the playbook to know what he's supposed to be calling. And if he's really good at it, the coach will give him some flexibility and some freedom to call audibles because he's proven himself faithful to the playbook. And in the same way, we are moving down the field as a family. And the family's saying, Dad, where are we going? Why is it, Honey, where are we going? Where's God taking us? And, and we as quarterbacks or the heads of the home need to lead. But we need a team that is following along with us and going in the direction we're going. You know, some men have stayed away from church, stayed away from God, because, because their wives refused to let them lead. They were not submissive to their husbands. They wanted to hold that role because they were spiritually smarter, knew the Bible better, stronger personality, and so dad stepped back. But because he stepped back, he never stepped up. But you know what I've also seen? I've seen cases where wives, in this church even, have said, you know what, I'm a very strong personality, I'm rare and fire for the Lord, but I, I've learned to step back and uh, respect my husband and his leadership in the home. And you know what's happened in some of these cases? That man has come and given his life to the Lord, gotten into the Word, and become a Bible study leader. One man became an elder. Another man became a staff member because their wives said, I'm going to honor my husband and, and support him in the role he's called. I'm going to fulfill my role, which will help him to fulfill his role. See, in chapter uh, 5, there's a verse before the um, section we read that ended that passage on being filled with the Spirit. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's because of Jesus that we submit. He is the example. See, the secret of a great marriage is this. Do for your spouse what Jesus has done for you. If, if both husbands and wives would do this, it would revolutionize our marriages. I mean, if, if husbands would simply be like Jesus to their wives, if, if we would spend time with God, get alone like Jesus did with the Father, understand the Father's will, be willing to do His will even when it's painful, be willing to say, not my will but yours, being willing to lay our lives down for the one we love. If we're willing to put aside our selfish agenda and say, my wife's agenda, my, my kids, I'm going to serve, serve them. You would do incredible things in our homes, in our marriages. Love would be evident in our actions. We'd come home from work tired, and we'd say, hey, what can I do around the house? When we're exhausted from a long day and the demands on us, we'd say, hey, let me, let me take the kids right now. Or let me go outside and play catch with my son, even, even though I'm tired. I really want to just sit down and watch the ball game. I don't do it. I sacrifice that. I sacrifice me for her and for them. Follow Jesus. What about wives? What, what if you just look to Jesus? Now, I know when God made um, Eve, God made Eve, and then he said that she would be his helper. And sometimes it feels like, that's it? She's his helper? That's, I get to, yep, I'm, I'm his helper. Um, and he gets to tell me what to do. You know, I want you to look at that, that word differently. 
Because in the Old Testament, someone else is called helper, and it's the Lord. The psalmist writes, the Lord is my helper. Do you think that's the meaning of God? Do you think that's demeaning? You know when Jesus was getting ready to leave this earth, he told his disciples, and I'm going to send one who will be with you to teach you and to comfort you and remind you of what I've taught and share with you things that are to come. And he is called the, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Is, if God can be called the helper, what is demeaning about being a helper? In fact, maybe, maybe as wives, in the role of helper, You are so much like God. See, if we would just learn to be more like Jesus in our marriages, in our lives. See, even if you're not married, Jesus is the standard for all of us. If we would all just follow his example, our relationships would be so much better.